0: So, last week, we finished up verses 5 and 6 after a few weeks sitting there for whatever reason. Um, Speaking about swords, right? And now this week, we're going to go into the next portion of this oracle. Some think it's a separate oracle, but it's still directly related to the last, alright? So, before we do that, let's pray. And we'll read our text. We're still in Micah 5. Like I said, we finished up 5 and 6, so we'll be looking at 7, 8, and 9 this week. And then we'll look at the next oracle in verse 10 next week, hopefully. We'll see. All right, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you, Father God, for um, this your day, Lord, for allowing us to come and gather together as your people uh, for the purpose of worshiping you, learning about you, meeting you, Father God. Um, We thank you, Lord, for your word and the wisdom therein, Father. We pray that we might learn and grow in our faith and in grace and in truth and be molded into the image of Christ, Father, through the power of your Spirit, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that as we look into this, that you would um, enable us to truly believe what it says, Father God, so we might take this out into the world and apply what we uh, learn here. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So let's read the entirety of 5, 1 to 9, just to provide context. All right. It says at the beginning here, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Lincoln, this is the ESV's uh, rendering of this. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, therefore, Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. (coughs) All right. So again, last week when we were talking, we spoke about what it means that the people of God shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, right? Who remembers what we said about this? What, what, how do we put this into context? What does it mean that we shepherd the people or, uh, of Assyria, or the land of Assyria with the, with the sword? Who remembers? We were looking at swords, what did we say? God. Yeah, yeah. It can rightly be understood as the word of God. <clears throat> and it ought to be understood that way. That's absolutely correct. Uh, what else did we say about that sword? God. We did yeah in the garden of eden with the uh angel and his flaming sword right? and we saw that the fire of god um and that same fire came down on the people of god in terms of tongues resting on them at pentecost right uh because remember what jesus says about well about his mission in terms of the world what's he going to do he's going to baptize the world with fire right he says he did not come, uh, he came to set fire to the earth, he says, right in Luke. So, uh, this is one way in which he does that. Remember that we looked in Revelation, we saw how the sword comes out of uh, Christ's mouth, right? symbolically, obviously. I mean, John turns and he sees this great metal man whose legs are like burnished bronze, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and he has a sword coming out of his mouth. Right? So, clearly, We know that, again, that imagery is is symbolic, but it gives us an indicator as to what these sorts of things mean as we read them. All right, and so that's discussing the Messiah and the Messiah's people, um, how they deal with the world around them, or at least their enemies when they are invaded. Now we're transitioning from Christ to the church, um, or from the Messiah to Israel, the remnant. And when we read it, this is this is the effect of what, uh, well, their warfare has on the world, right? It says, let's read verse 6, right? They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he, that's the Messiah there, the one who comes from, Bethlehem Ephrathah, the one who is coming forth is from of old, the one whose name shall be great. He uh, shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then, and this is why some people think this is a separate oracle, they think that the then part um, is a transition in terms of like uh, Michael gave, well, generally speaking, in terms of all of the prophets, how they're laid out is, you have an oracle, right, a a, a prophecy, and then you have another prophecy, and then you have another prophecy, right? And they're separate prophecies strung together, okay? Um, And that's that's, uh, how it's generally understood, and that's definitely, I shouldn't say definitely, but probably the case. when you read the prophets, you know, they don't really read the same way a, um, a narrative would read, right? They don't read the way Kings reads or, or whatever else. But even in Kings, you know, you have separate stories that are sort of strung together, right? And sometimes not in the same order as what you'd see in Chronicles or elsewhere, right? So um, it's, not, it's not set up the way that we would sometimes like in terms of, uh, you know, any of these books. They follow a logical sequence that, uh, and as the author writes, he, he's writing you know, one thing after another. Um, now, the way that this would have been done, generally speaking, in terms of how it's understood, is Micah would have prophesied these, right? And perhaps a scribe or someone, or even Micah himself would have written them down, and then they would have been compiled and put together, right? So we can see as we, well, if you're a secular um, critic, a uh, textual critic, a lot of times what they do when they read these, they, they're completely unconnected. There's no, there's no flow, there's no whatever, right? And so they'll say, this part wasn't even done by Micah or whatever else it would be, right? Okay, so we can discount that. But as you read them, you start to see that even if they are separate uh, oracles, they do Fit together perfectly, and they flow one into another, creating a poetic or logical, you know, depending on the uh, the author, <coughs> chain of well, or well, just sequence. So here, this one, if it is a separate oracle, it doesn't really matter because it is directly tied into the um, what was said prior in in verses one to to six. The then ties it directly to what's going on before that when the messiah delivers the people of god right when he delivers them from their enemies then the remnant of jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples you know if we think about this this is one reason well this is a reason why they think this is completely separate and unrelated and unconnected because it says um he shall, he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. See? And it's like, oh, that's a completely unconnected idea, right? We're talking about our land and our borders. And then immediately we're talking about being in the midst of many peoples. Okay. But how do we, how do we as, you know, believing scholarship or just believers in general, how do we look at this and say, okay, how are these two things connected? How are they tied together? Well, like we said before, if we understand the verses 5 and 6 as poetry, as a song, as symbolic in nature, which it would have to be, you know, we would have to understand Well, if the land of Assyria itself is symbolic, right? Because remember, at the time of the Messiah, the land of Assyria was gone. It was not there anymore. They had, the people of God had different enemies, okay? And so um, if we understand that as symbolic, should we understand then um, our land and treads within our border as symbolic as well? That would seem to only make sense, all right? And and the and the beauty and wonder of it, you know, if looking back on texts like this from the New Testament or New Covenant perspective, is well, what land belongs to the people of God, right? What land belongs to the Messiah? What is the Messiah's land? Okay? Yeah, the world, right? You read Romans four, uh, what is it, four thirteen, and. You see that Abraham was promised the world, right? That's what Paul says. That's how Paul puts it. Right? The Meek shall inherit the earth and all of those things. So the people of God's inheritance is everything. It's all of God's. It's all of Christ, right? You read or you uh, read Christ's parables and he talks about in the kingdom. That what's what's the kingdom of of heaven like? Well, it's like a. Uh, a dragnet, right? And he talks about that one, and that one uh, explicitly, where he just pulls up all kinds of fish. So, or, or the field, right? That's, that's probably even a better one. You know what? I'm just going to turn there just because it's easier to do it that way. <coughs> Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, the parable of, uh, let's see, which one? parable of the weeds. No, is that the right one? Yeah, I believe so. Okay, so the kingdom of heaven, this is in, you don't have to turn here, I'm here if you want, I'll just tell you where I am. It's Matthew 13, you know, the great parable chapter. Uh, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. Uh, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the weeds. And also went away, so when the plants come, uh, came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. Uh, and he goes on and explains what happens, but let's, for our sake, we don't need to go into the, that much detail. But he says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man, who sowed good seed in his field. Okay, so this man has a field, and he's sowing good seed. So let's read what this means. Um, in verse 36, it says, Then he left the crowds and went into uh, the house, and his disciples came to him and, and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Right? So the sower of the seed, the one who owns this field, is the Messiah. Right? He's the son of man. Uh, the field is the world. Yeah, Yeah. so what's his? Well, the world. The world is his. Right.'" But he has some enemies still who go, the weeds are are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So those who are um, the enemies of God and Christ are living in his world, right? Not vice versa. You know, those who are Christ, the, the church, is not living in the devil's world. No, the enemies of God are living in Christ's world. And Paul tells us in terms of inheritance and everything else, we inherit along with Christ. Everything that is Christ as his bride is ours as well. And it's ours to manage and to govern, right? That's what a good wife does. You read Proverbs 31? You know all about that? That is a descriptor of the church doing its job. It's taking what is the husband's while he's away, judging at the gates, and making it profitable, Right? that's the church's task to be a good spouse of the husband of Christ and to steward what he has well right it's it is it belongs to us it belongs to the people of god the world is ours right so it it's kind of hard to understand that especially in times like this is it not right that's why so many people get pessimistic or uh you know upset or or whatever they think that um well the world is the devil's right and that you hear this one a lot actually you know because he's the prince of the power of the air the god of this world and so it all belongs to him and we're just like you know outposts of heaven just sitting here huddled you know we got a Hold on, right? There's that old hymn. Hold the fort, right? Something, something. Hold the fort. Jesus is coming, right? It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's not how this works. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah, no, it's very easy to like, get this part and to see the magnitude of the work that needs to be done. Ah, uh, yeah. And some might even feel compelled to be, like, lead up here, mm. right? Mm-hmm. different taking on the battlefield. Yeah. Yeah. No, some, yeah, some choose to uh, not fight, right? Or at least they give up the fight, you know? And that's uh that's a problem. That's a problem that we faced for a very long time, actually, uh, as the church. The church has given up the fight for quite some time, you know? Come early 1900s, it was, we have nothing to do with this world. The world is not our home, right? So, what do we do? You know, we just sort of let everything go and, and, and we'll be, you know, sucked up out of here. So, uh, that was a view for a very long time, and we see the effects of that. You know, the church gave up its, its job. Now, um, let's see. But as the church does its job, though, there will be greater consequences. And we, we we see this in, to transition back into our text here, we see this as we read 7 and 8, okay? And this is, this is actually, as I was going through this and now as I was reading this, this is beautiful. Like, it truly is. It's truly remarkable. And um, I, I wish I could read Hebrew. You know, I, I need to learn how to do that. Because um, in the commentaries I was reading, it, it's even more striking in, in the Hebrew, you know? But... Uh, it says this. Then in English it's still it's still wonderful. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. Well, that makes perfect sense if we understand, you know, it's symbolically. Like what's our land? Well, our land is the world. You know, there's going to be enemies all around, just like in that parable that we read. You have the wheat that's sowed by the son of man, and you have the enemies sowing weeds. The weeds are all around the wheat. Yes, that's how that that's how that works. So The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. And this is sort of off a little bit in terms of translation. Um, Which delay not for man, nor wait for the children of man. Okay, so delays not for a man. That makes it kind of sound like, um, you know, it's talking about the people of God being like rain, right? A gentle rain is actually how it would be translated. Uh, and rain doesn't wait for anybody, you know? It doesn't wait on anybody. It just sort of you know, comes when it comes and does what it does, right? But that's not the emphasis here. That's not what's actually being said by this passage. What's, and the way it's worded is co- technically correct, but it doesn't give you the sense of what it's actually saying, okay? In the um, that's interesting. Okay, in the in the I was just reading, sorry the ESV. I, when I do my study, I go through like different versions, you know, and like most of my, my primary version that I use the, the most is the New King James, so it reads differently. So, um, but anyways, so if I get stuck on this, like reading it, trying to sort it out, but, uh, sorry. But, um, okay, then the, rem- the the emphasis is actually in the Hebrew is on this part right here. Um, like, do from the Lord, okay? So the origins of, it's, it's, uh, it's focused on the origin of the remnant, right? The origin of the people of God, the remnant of Jacob. That's do, that comes from God. Its origin is heavenly in nature, okay? good. Uh, I'm not sure. What does Psalm 133 so,
1: yeah, the one thirty-three to say?
0: Well, yeah, yeah, I, in, in that, in a broad sense, it is.
1: Because it's from, the is blessing from God,
0: right? Very good. That was going to be a question that I asked. Like, what does it mean that the, that the people of God are like a dew, right? Dew is always associated with blessing, with fertility, with with life giving. It's a life giving force, right? When the, when the dew or gentle rain comes, um, it gives life to the earth, okay, right? We, we understand that, that's a pretty clear picture, yes? And, um, but again, its origin is heavenly, it comes from God. And then the point in this, it says, well, it says, uh, nor wait for the children of man, which delay not for, for a man, and that, and when it talks about you know waiting for somebody, it's not talking about tarrying, like waiting for someone to do something or whatever. It's talking about um, uh, wait for them to send you, right? It's not coming from man; it's coming from God. It's a contrast there, right? That's what it's really saying. It's not saying that uh, it's not saying that the due from God is waiting for men to do something. No, it's saying that. The do from God is from God. It's not waiting for man to send it, you know. Man can't send it. It comes from God. The people of God come from God. It doesn't. They don't come from man. They don't wait for men. Right? That's what it's being said there. And do, specifically is dealing with blessing. Go
1: ahead. I was just add, I
0: yeah, there. please. It's yeah. quite all right. Uh,
1: what it says in, in 133 is, is this: the whole house. Precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robe, like the dew of Hermit. Right. So, the oil being, you know, from God.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And the, So, where's the first time we see dew in the Bible? In, uh, in the garden. Absolutely, in the garden. How is the garden watered? Yeah, yeah, but what was the origin point of that do? What does it say? Yeah, 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 and before the fall, and before the fall. It came from the ground. It came from the the earth. So before the fall, right, everything worked as it's supposed to work. It was a uh, self-sustaining system that God had created. Everything was doing exactly what it was supposed to be doing dew came from the ground and watered the garden, right? Because the earth was not under a curse. God's presence was still there in the large sense of it, you know? Heaven and earth were still close in that sense. There was not that separation. So dew comes from the ground in that sense. But now, when there is that separation, when the earth is under curse and everything else, Christ is still unifying everything. However, the dew must come. From heaven you know it can't come from a cursed ground any longer you yeah, know in, in terms of blessing so this blessing now comes from God which is the people of God the people of God are that blessing we're that life-giving force yeah we're, we're, we're there remember what it says about the people of God um, what we read when we went through revelation right what are the people of God in terms of what we read in revelation 21 and 22 how are they described God yeah 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 when we read when we read about that how are the people of God described in that old oh, trees of life right we're described as trees of life whose gives it fruit in its season and and its leaves are for the healing of the nations right that's the blessing that comes from you know, um, the people of God. And we don't come again, we're not sent by men. We come from from our message is heavenly and we're sent by God. You know, we don't need the leave of anybody. Okay? So because remember, whose world is it? It is Christ's world. Go ahead. Shoot. Yes. Is that both Gentiles and believers? Is that like it, types it, of people? It would be, yeah, in the midst of well, it wouldn't be in that sense is in it's in the sense of nations. Okay. You know. It's in the midst of many, many peoples, many ethnos, or what you know, whatever in the Greek however. Many nations, many different kinds of people, but not in the sense of believer or unbeliever, in the sense of many ethnicities, many nationalities, many different uh, nations, right? Yeah? that the people of God will be all over the world in the midst of all these nations, right? That's how it's pictured. So it's a blessing, too. It's a blessing. Now it says in verse 8, And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations. Give you your answer. Right? Like, these are this is a parallelism. So, like, it explains itself. So the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, and it says the same exact thing, slightly different. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations. So that, that provides you the context. Okay? And then it says, in the midst of many peoples. Explaining it again. Uh, and then it says, like a, young, uh, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. So what do we see here? You know, in, the, in this, in the same context, we see the people of God coming in like dew, giving life, being the blessing, and then, in the same exact context, we see the people of God coming in like a lion in a sheepfold, tearing and ripping in pieces and trampling and treading down, with none to deliver. Right. So, how do we look at that? How do we understand that? You know, and. I, I, you know, the, this is what we would call antithetical parallelism, right? And, this, and the poetic effect that this has is, is really striking, you know, if you, if you read it like that. You, know, you see blessing and you see cursing at the same time, you know, malediction and benediction. You see both coming from the people of God, but how should we understand that God?
1: The way I read this one, sure. I read it, you know, the devouring is the devouring of the evil, of evil, and, and that ultimately, in, in this case, that devouring is a good thing, you know, it, it's getting rid of what's wrong and bad, and, and that kind of simplified
0: but Yeah, you know, abso- absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you had something to say? No. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to look at it, but... Um, we could be more specific about it too, right? Like, how does Paul describe the message that we preach? More powerful than a sword. Well, Paul say that. Sure, but <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. It is a, it's a two-edged sword, absolutely. But but he says like it's a an aroma, of fragrance, yeah. And it's a what is it's it? Of death. Yeah, it's a stench of death to those who are perishing, but of life to those who you know. Alive, so, um, so that's the me- that's one message, but with two effects, right? Yeah. That's how it always is. It always is. To the to the just, it's a blessing. To the unjust, it's a curse, right? Jews and Gentiles, full,
1: full
0: attempts, right. Those who are cold, power of God. Absolutely, absolutely. So the so the message that is preached, the sword, you know of. Um, the believer, the sword of the church, the sword of the people of God, gives life and brings death all at the same time. You know? In one stroke, it kills and makes alive. Yeah? Go ahead. What were you going to say? Um, I just one time said
1: in one of his messages that the, the cross has a dark side and a light side. Absolutely. That, yeah. that it's a blessing to those who believe in, and a curse, curse
0: and a damnation to those who will not. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. But if we look at this now, um, that's, yes, absolutely, and what, what Paul says, uh, we're not going to disagree with Paul, we're not going to even disagree with Bill Shishko, you know, he's absolutely, but <laughs> on certain things, but he's right about that. The cross does have a, have a light side and a dark side, as it were, you know, it brings blessing and it brings cursing, always, it's always the case, uh, everywhere in scripture it's thus. But um, but in the context of this, now we're dealing with the context of many peoples, right? We're dealing with the context of nations. So how does this work in terms of nations? How, like that, what we we're talking about, you know, as we go forth and proclaim the gospel to our friends and neighbors and loved ones and everything else, you know, we're dealing with individual souls, right? And to some, as Paul says, you know, to save unto life and to others it's the stench of death. Okay? And, but how does that work in terms of nations? Well, generally speaking, historically speaking, um, there have been very few nations that it was a stench of life to, or a fragrance of life, a stench of life, yes. Life stinks, right? No. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding, but uh, it, it, it's, it's a... Um, there's very few, right? It has happened, you know? Uh, however, most of the time, those who are in power, they like things the way they are, and they don't want to give you know, up their rights, their powers, okay? It's always a question. The question of the New Testament has always been, and still is to this day, who is Lord, right? Always. Who is Lord? Even to this day. We see it especially in our state, right? Who has apostles? Eh? Does Jesus have apostles? Or does Kathy, whatever her name is, have apostles? Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Jesus, yes, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. But, but that's, that's how it always goes, you know? Um, the message that the Apostles brought to the Roman world was always a political message. They would take the words of the Caesars and or Caesar Augustus at least and flip them and twist them on their heads you know uh, when Peter says um, that you know, only Christ uh, hold on. My mind is not functioning right now. It just shut down. Oh, that's a problem. But regardless, when 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 um, when Peter's speaking and he's delivering his uh, one of his sermons, he takes the words of um, Caesar Augustus or words that have been applied to Caesar Augustus, and says, "No, that's Christ." All right? He applies them to Jesus, and and. Uh, You see some of the charges that were brought in in, in the book of Acts. You see some of the charges that were brought against um, the apostles, and they were preaching another king, Jesus, right? Well, they were. They were saying basically that even Caesar must submit to Christ, right? Always. Mm -hmm. You know, Uh, it's funny. There are people who would talk about what Jesus said about. You know, God and Caesar. You say, you render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, right? And you render unto God the things that are God's, okay? Uh, Abraham Kuyper had a great response to to the people who would like to split that up, right? Who knows what it was? I know you do. You, at least you gave a look like you did. <laughs> I won't put you on the spot. It's okay, sir. Um, but, you know, the people like to split that up. See, even Jesus says that uh, there is the secular... There is the profane or whatever else it'd be. As you go to work, you pay your taxes, you do what you do, and like you know, the world is the world. And then there are things that are God's, and you know, that's over here. Well, as we read, you know, what does belong to Christ, what does belong to God? Everything, right? Even Caesar. So what did Kuiper say? He said that we we render unto things that are the things that are Caesar's, yes, and we render unto God, the things that are God's, and that includes Caesar. So we render Caesar unto God. Right? Good. Like,
1: oh, right. right. Image
0: Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Good.
1: Uh, as, you, as you go down through this, this chapter, of everything. Talks about the horses. It talks about the chariot. It it goes into uh, the sorcerers. It it, it covers everything.
0: Everything, right? Yep.
1: Both down to the kind of personal
0: type of stuff. Yeah, yep. Yeah, it does. It 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 reaches all the way down. You know, all the way down the covenantal chain. You know, in terms of spheres of authority, right? What are what are the spheres of authority that God has given to us? Like. uh, Yep, family is one, church, yep, state, and individual. That's absolutely correct. So so you start, you, those are the spheres of separate authority. You know, we talk about um, separation of powers, right? Those are the real separation of powers, the, the true separation of powers. You know, if you notice like, uh, man, I didn't wanna get in, and this is really random, but sure, we'll do it, you know. You got you read Montesquieu, his his book, Separation of Power, and um that's where a lot of the ideas come from for our our form of government, you know, that's under the French Enlightenment. And what happened was he took, he thought the only way to to um how do you put this? The only way to create a just system is within, with separating the power of the government within the government itself, right? So you had the different branches of government. Like, What are our branches of government? Who knows? Yeah, executive, judicial, and legislative, right? So he said, okay, we need to separate the power, except the problem with, with that understanding is that he, he bound all the power up within the state, okay? Because he dismissed the power of the church, And dismiss the power of the family. I mean, you know anything about the French uh, Enlightenment, and they were not very big on either one of those things, right? But but, uh, Catholic France, France pre revolution, um, they had a pretty good understanding of the real separation of powers. So much so that a father in the family, the head of a house, right? He had authority over the family. He was, yeah, he was the the head of of the family. So, when the king of France wanted to send sons and daughters—well, sons there were no daughters back then. And in, in terms of war, send them off to war. When sent sons off to war, the father could veto. He could say, "No, nah, that's not happening. My son needs to, to uh, you know, bring in the harvest. We're not going to war, you know, because." You know, that was his prerogative. He had charge over his family. He could veto even the powers of the king in that way. You know, and that's where the real separation of powers comes from, well, biblically speaking. You know, the, the, We understand that the state has no power over the church, right? We, and we should understand the state has, has no power over the family. But, you know, in our day and age, the state feels like it can just trample any sort of uh, power, any sort of, it has all authority, right? Unfortunately, no, all authority was given to Christ. And each one of these governments are legitimate, according to God. They're all covenantal institutions. God blesses men, individuals, God blesses families, God blesses churches, God blesses nations, you know, uh, or God damns families or churches or nations or whatever else. You know, there are, there are covenantal uh, institutions, legitimate governments that God set up that have their own individual spheres of authority. Since we start talking about Kuyper, we could end with talking about Kuyper. But um, let's look at verse 9, and then we'll close, okay? So, your hand, this this gets a little confusing, at least in the ESV here, your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Your hand shall be lifted up. Whose hand shall be lifted up? Well, it's confusing because it's talking about the remnant of Jacob and everything else. But in the Hebrew and in the context of this, this would be um, Yahweh. God's hand shall be lifted up. It It could read something like this. May your hand, O Yahweh, be lifted up over your adversaries. That's a paraphrase. Yahweh's name is not included in that. But that's, in the Hebrew, it's pretty clear as to who the, uh, your hand belongs to. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries. And that lifting up of a hand, when do you see that? Even today, when do you see someone's hand lifted up? Think of, uh, go ahead. Well, look at how it says, your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries. Huh? No, know, when someone's hand is lifted up, when someone's hand is like, if someone goes, you know, victory, right? You see a ref and he lifts up the hand of the victor over his adversary, all right? That's, that's basically what's saying. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversary. Your, your hand shall be lifted up triumphantly over your adversaries, all right? And all your enemies shall be cut off. That's the picture that's presented in this one, you know? Um, that through the Messiah well through the people of God and through the Messiah you know who let's flip this around just to make it a little bit clearer okay through the Messiah and thus through the people of God who are his bride who are one flesh with him who act on his behalf within the world uh, and who has you know who has his power um, God's enemies shall be cut off, and His hand shall be lifted up over His adversaries. So, how does? I didn't finish this thought, and I need to do it quickly. We spoke a little bit about it last last week, but how does the remnant of Jacob go through, tread down, tear, destroy the enemies of God? It's counterintuitive. Christ taught us this. It's through death, right? So when a government or when the nations or wherever you're sent, you know, despise, persecute, kill, imprison, you know, ostracize, make pariahs of the people of God, it is through that that the people of God conquer, right? How did Tetrillian say it? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? So as as the church goes forth into the world and brings this message that is either life or death. Depending on um, the individual and the land itself, the, the people within the land, if the peoples accept you know its life, and you'll see blessing you'll see the people of God performing like they do, but if they reject, if they persecute, etc, then judgment falls from God on that people, on that city, even as how uh, Christ puts it yeah? so On the on that people judgment falls and they are removed from the equation. They're removed from the board, you know, and so that's how that works. All right, it's it's counterintuitive. You you win by dying because one one thing that is not clear in our understanding of things, which is unfortunate. You read the older. You read the older martyrs, right? You read like the first century, second century, all, you know, just the early church in general. You read how they understood things. And they understood that their life doesn't end when they're put to death, right? They go on and keep living, right? They don't, death isn't the end, right? they're sent to God to be judged, as it were. You know, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what they wanted to hear. So they didn't fear death. You know, they didn't fear uh, anything that the world could do to them. Christ tells us not to fear anything that man can do to you. So dying to them wasn't a big deal. They weren't worried about it, you know? And this bled through in every aspect of what they did, right? When epidemics went through, right, went through Rome, the church ran in knowing that they could catch the disease and die just to give aid and comfort to those who were dying, to help in whatever way they could, knowing that they could die themselves. Because to them, death was nothing. Death was not the end, it was just, you know, another door they tri- passed through to there with God continuing to live. A matter of fact it would be better, right, as Paul put it, better that I die, right? But in our day we're so fearful of death, like the pagans, that, uh, who have no hope and are without God in the world, that there's really no difference between us and them. You know, so we gotta, if, if things are gonna change, we have to lose that fear you know, that's the only way things can change. When we believe what the Bible says about life and death and what those things actually are, you know. And we have a great hope. But regardless, so, uh, yeah, that's how we win. That's how you tread down and trample. It might look externally like the one who's doing the treading down and trampling is... Is the state, is the Caesar, is the people who are doing the persecuting, right? They're killing the people of God. And yet, through the death of the people of God, they're filling up that cup, that cup of judgment, right? And it's gonna be poured out back upon them. Right? Okay. So any any comments or questions before we end? And then we could jump. Next week, good. I'm glad we finished this one up. That's good. I like that. We actually finished three verses in one day. That's pretty awesome. So next week we'll jump into the next oracle. That's uh, 10 through 15. There. Okay. Yeah, this one's good. This one's good because it uh, it really helps to shape or give a give a full shape to the picture of of what this new people of God is gonna look like the, the people of God in the age of the Messiah, in the time of the Messiah, in our age, yeah? So we could see more clearly how this works, okay? No, no, no other thoughts, comments, or questions? No, good, okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word, for um, you know, the power of your spirit, Father God, and, you know, and we pray, Lord, that we would be that people the people that Micah describes here, the people who are a blessing to the nations and people who are uh, like a young lion that tears and devours, Lord. But we have to believe your word, Father God. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a people of faith, a people marked out by obedience and uh, loyalty to our Savior, Father. And we pray, Lord, that as we um, seek to worship you today, That we would worship you wholeheartedly in spirit and in truth, Father, that we would come before you with clean hands and pure hearts, Father God, that you would uh, mold us and shape us into the image of your beloved Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.